it's a fish. A shark is a fish. People eat fish all the time. I mean, you know, when 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 there's a when there's a rogue elephant trampling all over the game reserve, they, they they kill the fucking thing. I mean, they have to. Yet the shark is singled out for total protection because we are um, living in we're going into their home or we're going to their playground or stuff like that. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. People can sort of think what they want, but. For me, I think style, style, and you either have it or you don't. And I think, you know, you only have to go out the pass or like crazy waves like that. And you, there's certain people in the world like, fuck, that guy's got a really good style. Yeah. That guy is annoying to watch. Welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson. And this week we have two interviews. The first is with director Kai Neville. I think it's safe to say Kai Neville does not need an introduction at this point. He's one of surfing's most revered filmmakers. Kai, he really came under the global radar after his film Modern Collective came out in 2010. And then since then, he's gone on to define a generation and he's ushered in a, a whole new era of performance surfing with and every piece of work he puts out. He, he always delivers incredible viewing pleasure has he ever not delivered he's he's on it every time he's a smart and humble man and everything he touches turns to gold i asked kai to swing past the stab office to talk about his latest piece sonic souvenirs it's a vans film with mikey february and then after that our second interview is with craig jarvis craig is a south african surf journalist that has recently written a story on stab premium titled The end of the dark ages on Reunion Island, after 15 years of chaos, shark attacks and surf bans, a recently launched project looks to change everything. The article is a fascinating and equally horrifying look at the return of surfing on Reunion Island, which of course deals with the reason it went away, which is the horrifying part, Uh, 18 shark attacks in the space of five years. I highly recommend signing up to Stab Premium and reading this article or at the very least, using your friend's account to sign in and access it that way. And if you don't have any friends with an account, then my unsolicited advice would be to get some new friends, some some friends that care about surfing. In surf news this week, John John Florence's new brand, Florence Marine X, who recently acquired Pat O'Connell from the WSL, are rounding the corner on their first range of product being available and they are approaching this very differently to most surf companies. The world's most highly valued businesses have a recurring revenue model or somewhat of a monogamous relationship with their customers and Florence Marine X are following suit with a subscription service. So without knowing the exact details at this stage, it'll look something like a monthly fee where you will in return receive member benefits but that's all we know and right now if you go to their website florencemarinex.com there isn't much there but that is all about to change when they drop the product and formally announce this new subscription service so stay tuned for that in wsl news there was a recent meeting with all the competitors to discuss the remaining events of this year's tour in particular, the recent events that were just added to the tour schedule, the Jeep Surf Ranch Pro in Lemoore, the Corona Open in Mexico, the Oi Rio Pro in Corona. Uh, that's a, a bit of a Freudian slip there. The Oi Rio Pro presented by Corona in Brazil, the out-of-known Tahiti Pro in Tahiti and the Rip Curl WSL Finals at Trestles. And the news from Stab's insiders was that during this meeting, there was a lot of friction around the Brazilian event in particular. The person that was most vocally against the decision to go there was Julian Wilson, who obviously was reacting to the safety concerns around COVID-19 and hence the slip up I just made and mentioning Corona. For anyone that hasn't followed the effect that COVID-19 has had on Brazil, it has been really devastating. Brazil's president, Bolsonaro has said things like, Brazil should stop being a country of sissies. All of us are going to die one day. He hasn't taken or certainly didn't take COVID-19 serious at the beginning. And they are one of the most or one of the worst affected countries in terms of their death toll. And 
Given the lack of infrastructure around the lower class and a shortage of medical support and testing, they might actually be the worst affected country. There's all kinds of devastating statistics coming out of Brazil. And I even read on the BBC the other day that things have gotten so bad there that Brazil is now actually a threat to the entire effort of the international community in terms of controlling the pandemic with vaccines because they're brewing so many new variants every single week which will eventually get out and and could actually render vaccines irrelevant. So it's a shit show and Julian's concerns are real. On the other side of that argument was Jadson Andro who took Julian's concerns personally to the point where it was a fairly heightened interaction and, and, a, and a very, very serious meeting over um, with the WSL competitors. No decisions have been made yet as a result of this meeting, but we will keep you in the loop. For now, let's focus on some much more pleasant matters and talk to Kai Neville about Sonic Souvenirs and Mikey February tearing apart perfect right-hand points. Probably the most perfect right-hand points you've ever seen. And Oki! We also talk about Mark Ocalupo, the 1999 world champion. Coming from Africa, it's amazing to see what's out there. And went on my first trip to Gambia when I was maybe 16, 17 and just grabbed a few records and had no idea what that would sound like. It was all this natural, raw expression and just creates these layers of, of meaning. I've got this neighbor who's a light artist. Yeah. He does like projections. He's done stuff on the opera house and all that kind of thing. And the other day he was going like, oh, do you, do you know Kyle Neville? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, I actually helped him out with a movie where we were like projecting and triangles. And, and I was like, modern collective? And he was like, I don't know, yeah. His name's Kit. Do you, do you know Kit? Maybe was he the lighting guy? Like, yeah, he uh, would have been the lighting guy, yeah. Yeah, right. So he was the gaffer. I w- yeah, I, I wouldn't remember. That was like over t- 10 years ago now, yeah. but that's sick. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was really funny because he's like my neighbour, like home improvement yeah. style. He's like my Wilson where like we just talk like just mm. over the fence and he's always got, because he's a lighting guy, he's always got these like trippy lights going on in his house. Yeah. And um, yeah, you can move that around. Sweet. and. And um, yeah, then when he brought that up, it was funny. I just imagine it just took me back to to Modern Collective and those. Yeah, that was funny. That was like my first studio shoot, like obviously where we brought in actual like legit people from the film industry. You know what I mean? Like there was like a gaffer and a proper DOP and like all this shit was sort of going on where, and the boys were just like, what is happening? But I was like, yeah, it was, there was some like professionals in there to make it look good. We weren't just running around with a camera. So yeah, that, you took it from, I guess you, you'd made a lot of films, a lot of DVD cover mounts, a lot of edits prior to Modern Collective and then you went and worked with Taylor mm. and, and you were working on movies with him and, and Paul Specimen and then that was your first like big project out on your own, huh? For sure. Um, I remember at the end of Stranger Than Fiction, uh, which I worked full time on with Taylor filming and editing and um, he gave me a pretty like good creative control position on that film. Like he was he was across absolutely everything, but um, he sort of let me loose with it a little bit, as you could probably tell by like the soundtrack and some of the cast that's involved. It's um, a little bit different from you know, the campaigns and like the later films he's sort of sort of done. And um, yeah, he pretty much said the next one's yours, like go do whatever you want. So like Modern Collective was still like under poor specimen right. as a production company. But um, yeah, Taylor just kind of set a budget and let me like really run loose with it and pretty epic. Yeah, he was pretty hands off, which was, which I was really lucky. Yeah, he's Taylor... In chatting to him, he's got like a pretty egoless uh, approach to working with other filmmakers mm. and helping people out, which is somewhat rare, I feel yeah. like, in really successful people. He's somewhat smart too. Because yeah, I feel like yeah. he's a really good, um, not saying like me, but I feel like he's a really, one of his strengths is networking. And I, mm. I feel like that's a, especially from a producer, which he's like not only a director, he's like a pretty like, uh, he produces a lot of stuff as well. But, um, yeah, sort of putting the right people together and um, I think that's like 
collaboration and like hiring people that are you know, they have a certain sort of skill set, whether it be a lighting guy, whether it be a cameraman. Like I work with cameramen pretty much, much full time these days because they're so much better than me behind a lens. Yeah. And um, yeah, one of his, I've, what, the best thing that I took from working with him was, um, you know, work with other people that um, can bring something else to the project. Um, and yeah, it doesn't make sense to like be sort of a helicopter boss and like change things. Otherwise, why would you hire these people anyway? Yeah, if you micromanage people you can't make them responsible for what they do. Yeah. So it's, it's the worst approach ever because you're ultimately always responsible and you don't get the best out of them. And yeah. Yeah, if Mono Collective Tank, you could have been like, that was just a horrible film. What was I doing? You're fired. Like, but um, yeah, it did okay. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it did amazing for you. That was like a fucking rocket ship in terms of the next generation of surf films and everything you went on to do afterwards. Yeah. But let's talk about Sonic Souvenir. So yeah. what is this new concept of releasing surf films? Like how many episodes will there be? The first one's just come out. First one's just come out. Very, I don't have a clue how many episodes are going to come and whether uh, hopefully the boys call me up again to be a part of it. But um, Oh, so this might, you just might be the, the first director for the first I one? I don't or? know. I don't think so. I think um, I'm pretty sure like me and Mikey are going to work on another episode and, uh, you know, we'll try and make it a banger. And mm-hmm. um, the, the dream is to actually do a trip together because like the interesting thing about this first episode that it was like done remotely, like I kind of, vans were really cool because we came up with, like Mikey had the original concept, vans basically said, um, hey, you can, sorry, I'm just going to turn that over. Uh, vans were very hands off, sort of said, hey, do what you want. Like they sort of support Mikey, like who do you want to work with? Like and kind of allocated a budget for a project and um, he came to me and I was like, idea sounds amazing. And, um, and what, how did he describe it? Was it, was it centred around the music? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was basically exploring his relationship with music and culture and his surroundings and how they kind of influence his surfing. Because, I mean, in 2018 he was on the world tour for that yeah. year. He qualified yep. but that is definitely not the framework to – to put around his surfing, if you want to, if you want to show it for all its potential, and I mean, he got he got fifth at J Bay, which is an incredible result, but he got a lot of twenty fifths and thirteenths, and and it just didn't seem to be the the best way to let his surfing flourish. I think it's a really interesting time for sort of surfing, and yeah, like I guess if we kind of rewind back like modern collective we were all about like the hammers and high performance surfing and like chasing you know onshore waves and whatnot and that was really cool and that was that was what we were into um but there's sort of only so much of that you can sort of watch and then everyone gets everyone's surfing fucking amazing these days like you know you rock down to your local beach and people are doing like full roads and whatnot um and then with content sort of changing too and how we're, you know, consuming these like things like instantaneously, um, I feel like there was a research. maybe it's just me because I'm getting older, but like people are like getting very hyped on watching like power surfing, like singling out style. Mm. Um, also really like there's not really surf films anymore to an extent of what there was. So they're kind of digging up old surf films now to like explore surf films as like a bit of a genre, you know what I mean? Like watching old surf films, getting pumped on that and like getting amped on like surfers from different sort of like eras. So I think it's really hard to like, you know, surf with sort of flow and power and style and there's only a few guys that are kind of, you know, doing it out there. And um, yeah, I just think... Mikey's sort of really started to like explore that for himself and um, it's that's the, his, the natural way he sort of surfs and him being sort of boxed to competitive surfing and riding a thruster and like thrashing around, he can do it and he yeah. does it amazing but like fuck, I want to see him like fly down the line at J-Bay and just like carve like on a 20, you know what I mean? That's sick to mm. me. That's what I like watching. So For sure. Yeah. And I think you touched on a really good point. Like there's like – there's a lot of surfs at the moment that have a lot of feel and are really style, stylish that tend to resonate with people a lot more than surfers that are technically proficient. And then like when we do our, we do reader surveys every year and mm-hmm. we get a bunch of 
uh, information from a huge chunk of people. Like it's amazing the amount of people that participate in these things. And in the 2020 reader survey, Mikey was placed seventh. Given the, the majority of readers that we have that are in America and Australia, it, it's like, it's, it's fair to assume there's a fair amount of pay, uh, patriotism. And so for Mikey to be that high and he, you know, he's just one below Kelly and he's above Geordie Smith, I think he's really telling to what people resonate with. And, and it's not that Mikey doesn't rip and it's not that he doesn't have this, um, this technicality and this incredible level of progression in, in his surfing, but what people tend to love about him is his style. And then, you know, like Rob Machado is still in the lift. He doesn't, you don't see him ever, you know, as a surfer. I think he's like 15th. And then uh, guys like Asher Pacey and uh, Rasta always do really well. So, it, or do you think like, because he is so beautiful to watch that people underestimate the, how radical his surfing is? Um, I mean, it, I guess it depends what you class as radical as well. You know what I mean? Like if, you know, like a fucking backflip or something's radical or if like a, a, a hack down the face of a six-foot wave's radical, like, you know, it's like everyone's, you know, style and what you're into is pretty subjective. But um, I just think in terms of the level of difficulty yeah. in the things that he's doing and I how hard... I actually think it's more difficult. Like, that's what I mean. Yeah, like, like oh, so, yeah, yeah, no, you're totally right. Like, I, um, yeah, I... It's funny, like Dane's one, Mikey's one. There's a few surfers that I've actually, you know, I mean, all the guys are amazing, but like I've actually surfed with and been in the water and that's like, I don't think their surfing comes across on screen as amazing as it does when you're actually in the water. Like I remember being in Mexico with Dane and watching him bottom turn and fucking come at me at the live and just going, are you kidding me? Like he just did a hack, like... Probably just a check turn for him and then he, I don't know even what he did on the inside. I probably should have been on the beach but like yeah. I thought we are just going out for a little little kind of splash around and I was just like, wow, that was amazing how much like drive he got off his bottom turn and like how powerful he was in the pocket. And um, Mikey was very similar. A few surfs I had with him in Fiji, I was just like, fuck, man, this guy surfs so good. Like this is hard to like really bring this to screen. You need the sort of certain – I feel like you need the right waves and the right environment to like showcase how good he really surfs. Mm. Um, so I, I feel like that flow from like, which is the opposite of where I started out in my career, but like very appreciative of it now, but like flow from a takeoff to a bottom turn to all that is just like a lot harder to do than like, you know, just hidden end section kind of thing is like, I don't know. I, I, and I feel like audiences today are like really into that. And mm. that's, that's kind of the surfing, not, not everyone, but like there's a big chunk of people that want to watch that. Did you ever see that, uh, that article that Jamie Brissick wrote in the New Yorker? It was probably like three or four years ago where he talked about Mikey February. Nah. So he wrote an article in New Yorker and he talked about the prevalence of cameras at the beach and its effect on surfing. And he chose Mikey Feb as an example and he described his surfing like this. He said, his hand jive, sole arches and Toreador like flourishes play to the camera in a way that breaks the spell of an iterant surfer in far-flung solitude. His style is as self-conscious as the duck face selfie. And the article is about how contrived and self-conscious surfing is nowadays with the prevalence of cameras, um, which is probably like most people wouldn't disagree with. But did you think this applies to Mikey and his surfing? And uh, in making the film, did you think Mikey's style was contrived in any way? Um, no, not at all. Um, I think it's, you know, people can sort of think what they want. But for me, I think style style and you either have it or you don't. And I think no matter if cameras are on the beach or whatever, um, you know, you only have to go out the pass or like crazy waves like that and you, there's certain people in the water like, fuck, that guy's got a really good style. Yeah. That guy is annoying to watch. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And whether it's like, you know, surfers in the 60s, 80s, 90s today, like I think it's pretty obvious like who has that kind of, you know, call it X factor or whatever, but it's just like that natural style and approach to a wave that's just 
fucking works and looks good. I don't know. I don't think it's contrived. I think it comes across pretty. If if, if it was contrived, I'd be like, well, dude, tone it down a little bit. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's like that's starting to look a little little whack. But no, nah, it's just he just surfs how he surfs, and and I also think he is just like I'm talking on behalf of Mikey, he might be fucking say something completely different. But um, I really feel like my time with him, as little as it's been, he's sort of still figuring out himself as a surfer and he's really only just had the opportunity probably the last year or two to explore like his style of surfing and boards he's sort of interested in. And mm. I'm pretty sure he spent 10 years just writing a shortboard. You know what I mean? Like because in his head he was – going to be on the world tour and that's what you do. Um, so, yeah, I think his, his style is still flourishing and it's probably going to evolve. Yeah, well, maybe this this film is the like the first time we get to see it uh, since the door just kind of went and opened right up since he's changed his boards and doesn't have any confines of, of competition. It's funny, like I, I think to me when I was young, I, I thought good style was Rob Machado and, mm. and then – there was just uh, less versions of good style that were, you know, working backwards from that. Mm. And now I think good style or what I appreciate in someone's style is like personality. So mm. if like my friend who's got really stiff shoulders goes to, you know, do a turn, it's always a snap because he doesn't have the mobility to do a nice carve. And, and I feel like you get the impression or maybe this is just reading into it too much, but it, Mikey, Mikey seems to have so much personality and he's surfing and it's probably like where he ex- expresses himself. Do you think he's like his personality matches what he does on a wave? Yeah, for sure. He's um, – yeah, that's a really good question. Um, he's – I actually think his style is a little bit more aggressive than like his personality to be honest. Like yep. I actually think he's – he kind of saves um, – he, I don't know if it's if it's right, but maybe he saves a little bit of his release for his surfing too. Like he, he's pretty explosive surfer, and on the beach he's like the most humble, like mellow dude ever. You know what I mean? So like, uh, you could almost expect him to surf even more laid back, like absolutely cruise. But um, I think he's yeah, it's a bit more, bit more uh, aggressive than what mm. Mikey is on land because he's so mellow on land, and then when you see him in water, he's going so fast. And he's just yeah, like fucking just. Yeah, it's top to bottom, like surfing really fast. Like he actually surfs really, really fast. So, um, yeah, and yeah, he's he's a very, very humble, humble person. Yeah, he, that definitely comes across. Hey, where did the name Sonic Souvenirs come from? Um, the name, I guess, uh, it was you know, I kind of landed on something that I wanted to be sort of symbolic of the Mikey's kind of paragraph of what he you know it was like his mission statement for the the project and yeah I just wanted something that was like very bedded in sound but also souvenirs was something that I guess alluded to travel and like all those things that you kind of you know little gems that you pick up on the road whether it's finding new waves or meeting new people and something like that so it was like it was pretty pretty symbolic of the project I like it and did that come easy? Did, did names like that come easy or do you agonise over I names of your films? I actually really enjoy naming films. It's like one of my, yeah, it's, it's, I've got a pretty big list to pull from like that I've kind of worked you, You're kind of like stockpiling ideas yeah, and names. Yeah, yeah, so I've just from, I'll grab it from anyway, like look at that fucking esky out there, like we love so whatever it is, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'll be like, oh, that's a pretty cool title or, yeah. you know, matching sort of words together. So that part, yeah, the, the hardest part is actually what name works for a project and, you know, what name is going to breathe a little bit more life into the project and make it sort of inherently its own. Mm. Um, so you sort of almost forget about the name where it becomes just part of the film in a sense. It's like its own its own little sort of brand. So, yeah, I usually have a few names that I kind of workshop in the start and um, maybe do a little bit of rough design and kind of feel them out. I bounced a I bounced probably five titles off Mikey um, and that's kind of where we landed. So The concept seemed to hinge heavily on the music, which was just a really nice thread throughout. And there's so many variables that contribute to films, uh, you know, but in terms of what makes them work, you know, there's the footage, there's the locations, there's the surfing, there's 
there's there's kind of an infinite amount of things you can cut, but music is obviously really significant. What percentage would you put on the music in 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 terms of how it determines the quality of the film? Um, I've, I think I've said it before. I reckon it's at least fifty percent part of the project in what I in like this style of film like something that's you know a surf film or something very visual that's like heavily sound based it has to be half the job like I personally would rather watch some okay surfing to to really good music that's cut well as opposed to some fucking great surfing to a horrendous track even though that's even though that's my opinion but like I that's just that's just what I think. I think it's a – they have to sync up and, yeah, the footage and the music have to sort of work together for sure. Yeah. Music is so much more in control of our emotions mm. or, or just anything in the, in the audio space like sound design, mm-hmm. music, all those kind of things. When we're watching any type of film, it seems mm-hmm. to be much more poignant in being able to move it. So if you're trying to make something uh, – you know, you need to dedicate so much, so much attention to the to the audio. I think, like Aronofsky says, that the majority of independent films fail because they don't either allocate enough budget or they don't allocate enough effort into into the audio. And like the audience might not even realise, like they're just watching it and thinking this doesn't feel right or isn't isn't the quality that I, I really want. But it seems to be like extremely underestimated. And I feel like the mistake a lot of young filmmakers in surf make is they pick stuff that's cool or that they think is cool or or maybe um, creates a perception on their personality that they're after rather than picking something that works for the film and has the right feel. Is it- yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah, it's probably across the board and, you know, like what we do is very low tier but like it is an art form in like feature film world for sure. Like that's mm. like there's – sound scores, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the, the good guys are fucking good and they get paid a lot of money for a certain reason. They bring a whole another dimension to a film. Um, but, yeah, this one, was, this one was different in the sense of um, it, I've never gone about a surf film with, like, collaborating with a sole artist, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's pretty pretty huge departure from what you've done typically. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a fun... It's always fun to do something different and it's always it's always it's it's interesting to work with like new people and um the the thing I got out of it was um it changed my editing and it changed I was like restricted to like only a number of tracks like we we found Mikey found like Madala who's like an amazing artist you know we wanted it to be you know, African music, like Mikey's South African surfer. We're shooting in South Africa. We wanted to use like local artists. And um, yeah, we came across Madala who um, we got in contact with and I sort of sent a little rough cut from one of his like live YouTubes to some of Mikey's surfing. And um, long story short, he was into the idea and um, jumped in the studio, watched some of the surfing and just ripped through five tracks. Like it was very, he's very freestyle and it was very sort of natural to him. I had to do the, you know, the work to like make my sort of Mikey surfing and edit sync with the art that he's created, which was cool. Like it's different. Like, so Mm. I was sort of re-editing and changing sections and like working on the sort of post side, like a lot longer than what I had just to like connect it. And um, so it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Mikey surfing is hypnotic because it's because he's so stylish and effortless, and it just I don't know. There's something that does put you in a little bit of a trance. He and he, he's got a kind of like that free jazz approach to to wave. It's funny you mention that because from sort of our research and you know looking into like Madala as an artist, like he is a freestyle like artist, and like he's I forget the term that he has, but he. I think it's Madala line. I think he does mention it in the film, but he he kind of goes into a bit of a trance like space when he plays right. the music, and yeah. like yeah, he'll just just go off and then like come to and like yeah, it's pretty cool. Hey, does he ever go left? I've never seen Mikey Feb go left. Well, there's not too many lefts in Africa other than well, there probably is Namibia, obviously. Yeah. Um, he in Fiji, he was 
we definitely saw him go left and he was ruling oh, yeah. um, on a Bonza, which is not easy to ride. Hardboards to serve, yeah. especially in like six to eight foot tubes. Um, but um, yeah, we kind of just, again, just worked with what we could and where he lives has some of the best sand bottom and rock, you know, some of the best points in the world. And yeah. So we kind of sort of tick, tick that box, highlight that sort of part of Mikey's surf and maybe the next episode we might try and hunt down some left somewhere because it would be sick to see kind of Mikey, you know, get loose on some like bigger lefts, left points, like where he yeah. can kind of like draw some turns out and, you know, jam the, it. The quality of the waves in the film is so fucked up. Like I know that 2020 was a really special year yeah. in South Africa. Geordie Smith talked about it a lot. Yeah. But it, it's, it's as, as it goes on, you just can't believe he's caught that many good waves in, in you know, I don't know how, what long, what the filming window was. He only did three or four trips. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Nuts. Yeah, like, yeah, three or four tr- trips in the space of maybe two months. Mm. And yeah, those kind of, those right bottom little wedgy, like do a hack, hop into another tube, like down like the south coast there, where, you know, it was, I was losing it i was so frothy i was like i want to go and surf this wave yeah that's 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 a dream like that's that's like as good as it gets kind of like for on like a fun fun factor for a regular foot i was like wow dude like that shit looks fun do you get a lot of feedback from the music in your films like when people come up and talk to you about your the movies that you've made do they do they often mention the the soundtrack yeah especially like modern collective obviously had a pretty strong vision of like how I wanted it to look and how I wanted it to sound. And that was like, that was the sound that I was into. And a lot of the surfers, we were like really like experimenting with then. You know what I mean? You were like, right into like all the, the, the electro stuff? Oh, right into Really? I fucking love that shit. Yeah. yeah like you still? Yeah. I'm, I'm almost like went different. And now I'm like, it's been, it's been a while, like 10 years. And I'm like throwing on like old cock, like the first like cut copy records and shit. That shit's sick. Yeah. Like it's so good. But I feel like because it was so different, it definitely does get labeled as like electronic soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Very like if you actually like look at the soundtrack, it's it's very like it's not that at all. Like no, I mean there's, I, like I, there's split, split ends, ends, there's six Johnny, on Leaky Johnny Bird, yeah. Greenwood, like the horrors, like it's pretty diverse. Yeah. Um Soundtrack, but it just has a similar sort of tone throughout. Well, I think I think the reason everyone hung on to the, the electro uh, tracks that were in there so much is that no one had ever even come close to putting an electro track in surfing. So it just seemed to be this this just line in the sand of. of I think it ruffled a few feathers in the older, um, <laughs> like uh, yeah, whatever you call it, like surf sort of generation or fans. Like yep. some of the yeah, some of the crew maybe surfer mag and stuff like. Yeah, there's some reviews that probably weren't they oh, weren't really? too into it. Yeah, like, oh, this sounds like a fucking alarm clock. Well, fucking straight out of Melbourne. These fucking, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. That, which is cool. Like, that's fine. Like, yeah, we can't have like '90s punk on surf <laughs> films forever. It's coming back. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> also, yeah, something that you brought back recently when you made the Oki edit. Oki is joined Apoki, which yeah. is just such a convenient rhyme. It's classic. <laughs> and it's and, too funny. <laughs> and and you you guys got together and made a piece of marketing that is really uh, it's really different to mm. any other bit of marketing that I've seen at least come out of Apoki in it. It's an acted skit. It had Oki in there. It had Creed. It had Mitch Colborn. Creed, how are you, man? Check these out, lovers. Is it in the new direction of, of a pocket? No, like I feel like one thing which has been a bit of a blessing at a pocket is we um, somehow are still kind of running it ourselves. Like we've got obviously got partners, but they've kind of let us loose with the creative and um, we've never really put a ceiling on like what is the direction of a pocket. You know what I mean? There's no like sort of brand Bible, we're going to stick to these guidelines and whatnot. And that campaign was just like completely created around the style of the frame. Um, you know, what works bringing Oki into like our dynamic with like a pretty diverse team. We also just wanted to have some fun with it too. Like yeah. not try and like be too serious. Well, because Oki always has seemed really 
highly stylized. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, it's kind of gritty, but mm. it is, it always has that highly stylized feel. And this yeah. was, it, this definitely felt like, felt different to, to that. Yeah. I just, I just felt like it had to be, uh, that, that's how, what it had to be. It just had yeah, to land. Trying to, trying to make Oki look. Oh, dress him up in a like <laughs> suit and like, you know what I mean? Do a fashion campaign. Like, it would have looked stupid. Yeah. yeah. Like, so we were like, Oki's just so funny. He's so charismatic and he still looks great. You know mm. what I mean? And he's one of the best surfers in the world. And like, we just, like, Dion got access to like some of this footage that I don't even know if it's been seen or not for like a younger generation. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're like, oh, let's like, like there's new, um, it's a new channel to like, you know, rehash some stuff and like, you know, Gainey's kind of like, there's a few Instagrams and stuff where you're like starting to like tap in and watch all this like Margo and all this fucking incredible surfing where you're like, dude, that's a proper hammer. Like not even the guys these days are getting clips like this. And was it, was it Friends or Rom? The, yeah, the track? yeah. And we hit them up too and they oh, were frothing. Oh really? Yeah. They haven't had a call in like in 15 Flicked years. them a few pairs of lavas, the Oki frame and they're oh, just- they were into the, the Oki They're frame. just rocking it down the that's, pub wherever they're cruising. And you've got a new team member, Kaito Oashi. I don't know how. Kaito Oashi. Kaito. Kaito. Kaito Oashi. Yeah. I'm shit out He's actually been it. on the team for a little bit, but um, maybe Oki trumped his uh, rollout. Oh, you didn't get quite get the... Sorry, it's Ock. But um, <laughs> no, yeah, Kaito is probably one of the most stylish Japanese surfers ever. I don't know if people have seen much of him surf, but... Um, he fucking rips and he's probably the nicest guy I've ever met. Um, yep. Kaito rips. To fully loop that conversation around style back around, like he seems to have it in and out of the water. And Yeah, and he can't harp on about nicest dude ever. Like he came, like the first time he came to my place, he brought like my little boy Bobby like a ninja outfit. Like, oh, no way. Yeah, like, like from Japan. He's like, I was like, dude, that's the coolest present ever. Like you didn't have to do that. Like he's just, yeah, he's Kaito's sick. And how's business going? You, you started this business with two buddies mm -hmm. and it's uh, how many years in? I think we're almost eight years now. Are you still picking up each other's calls? Like I'm how's screening heaps of Dion's <laughs> calls. Heaps. No, but how, how is the, how's the relationships fared? Because yeah. going into business with friends is the number one rule. Yeah, uh, of things not to do. Fucking, I've done definitely done a few things that are on the rule book of not what to do. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, when things become real, they become harder, obviously, you know, like things grow, you know, you get staff, you get warehousing, you have budgets and shit becomes real and you're like, mm. so it definitely changes the dynamic of, um, hey, we're just fucking making eyewear to like, yeah, we've got to run a business. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, can be stressful on friendships for sure. Um, but we're all like still best buds, like as much as we have not even falling out, it's just like serious business conversations where, you know, maybe we have like, you know, different ideas or whatever. It's been pretty chill, and especially through what we've, I feel like what we've been through, like through the company, it's been pretty, um, yeah, it's been pretty hard and a lot of work. Like running a company is not easy. Yeah, I do not recommend it. Has it been more successful than you thought it would be? Yeah, I mean, I never thought we would have Mark Ocalupo on our surf team, you know what I mean? <laughs> I never thought we would have Mark Ocalupo on our surf team. You know what I mean? Thank you, Kai. Next up, we have Craig Jarvis all the way from South Africa to talk about the return of surfing in Reunion Island. Reunion Island is a tiny French territory in the middle of the Indian Ocean, several hundred miles east of Madagascar. It's a volcanic island that's home to world-class waves endless beaches and a rich natural heritage. It's basically paradise. But as we learned, every paradise has a boogeyman. Here, it's sharks. Reunion Island is definitely on the map, but there might be a lot of people out there who don't know much about it. Can you, can you just describe Reunion Island to anyone who's not familiar? It's an island, it's volcanic, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's... um. Warm water, coral reefs, um, pretty pretty clean most of the time. And uh, you do all the surfing on the west coast, pretty much. The east coast gets a bit um, onshore and it gets a bit of mud in the water from the rivers that come down off the back of the um, volcanoes. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty 
beautiful place to go to. It's just off Madagascar, which is off South Africa. Yet it's yeah. it's a region of the French Republic. What's the culture like there? Is it, is it like being in France, ex- except nowhere near France, or is it its own unique place? I mean, it does have uh, the local community, the Creole kind of culture style to it. But I mean, if you if you going into the shops or you going into the restaurants or bars and stuff, it's 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 French. Does it have good French food? Same as France, you just survive on baguettes, baguettes and beer. Yeah. Got, <laughs> Sounds pretty good. good. Um, and, and you mentioned in your article that Jeff Booth, Richard Marsh, Sonny Garcia, Matt Hoy, Kelly Slater, and Mick, Mick Fanning have all won events uh, which have been held on reunion when it's the times that it has been on the world tour and when it has been on that world stage. How much growth has there been in reunion in surf tourism over, over the years or since those events? Yeah, so like it was quite low key when like in the early 90s um and there was like a couple of shops and there were quite a few um quite a few surfers here and there but then when the guys started coming in the mid 90s um it it boomed it definitely boomed yeah i'd say that it it grew tremendously i mean it became a well known surf destination and a, and a, a, a go to place for cooking waves i mean the waves are, the waves are really really good from what i've seen in in films over the years they just look like some of the most well-formed, picturesque, and just rippable walls that you could ever really want. Um, St. Louis is the best wave by far. Um, it's a perfect lift. Then there's, there are so many waves. Every little bay you come around, there's another wave. There's turtles, and there's Trobosan, and there's San Gil, and there's uh, Lazy Gretz, and all those spots. Everywhere you go, you just find another perfect setup. Wow. And this... Um, you know, like growing surf tourism and this and this incredible local surf community, it all came to a bit of a somewhat of a grinding halt in um, which started around two thousand and six, and there was a bit yeah. which was the beginning of a, a string of shark attacks. How, how bad did it get? So I mean, in two thousand and six, it started, and everyone kind of you know you get shark attacks all over the world, and um, everyone stops and and. And double double takes and and slows down and then kind of goes back into a normal vibe. It happens everywhere. And then 2006, there was two shock attacks. There were two people attacked um, fairly quickly. One was killed. One was injured. And it was quite a bit of excitement. But then it kind of faded a bit. And then the shit really hit the, the fan in about 2011 when the t- attacks just started increasing, the sighting started increasing. And I think there were six attacks in a short period and another three or four attacks shortly after that. And in the space of four, three years, two, three years, I mean, it was full on. It was the sharkiest place in the world, um, statistically. Yeah. I think, was it 18 attacks in the span of five years? Was that the official number it landed on? Uh, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, and I think there were... Yeah, approximately 18. Since 2011, the island has seen a spike in shark attacks, several of which have been fatal. And lately, the concentration and frequency of attacks has everyone puzzled. The Indian Ocean is known for being littered with sharks. And Reunion Island has seen their fair share of them for most of their history. Locals have called the increase in attacks a crisis. 18 people have been attacked, seven have been killed, all in the last five years. There was one line in particular from your story where you said people were getting killed a few meters from the shoreline, sharks were entering the lagoons. I mean, that just painted a picture to me of such an incredibly scary scenario in the sense that it wasn't just sharks coming across a human and, and having an inquisitive bite, it, it seemed like sharks were either overly hungry or, I don't know, they were seeking out humans. It was, it's just such a, just a horrifying line. Yeah, so I don't think they were um, like seeking out humans, but I definitely think they were hungry and uh, they were finding, finding routes that you wouldn't think they'd find. I mean, the one video that went out on social media, um, if, you, if you look at the overview of San Lu, you jump into the water and the current takes you down and, and then out and around. And when you go like around into the beginning of the lineup, it's like a bit of deep water there. But I mean, you're right inside. You're right, right inside. 
and there was a, a big fin cruising around, people sitting on the on the beach, like five meters away watching this fin, and it was like, fuck, the thing is right there in shallow water, exactly at the spot where people would paddle out and kind of float into the lineup a few meters from the shoreline. Yeah, I mean, it, it was the most bizarre thing to see that. And um, the um, the one attack happened to a young girl, a terrible attack, and she was five meters from the shoreline. And another attack happened to another girl who was swimming at uh, the lagoon, the lagoon side of their tank. It's not a full lagoon, but there's like a lagoon set up there. And she was apparently like two meters from the shore. I mean, it's quite a deep drop-off in, in the bay there, but it's like, fuck, man, you can almost reach the people, you know? Like, touch them, they're so close to the shoreline. That was, it's terrifying. That, that, that fin that cruised the inside lineup, um, I don't know who shot that, but that was the most terrifying thing I'd seen. Yeah, and any shark attack is tragic, but there was, a, there was so many attacks in Reunion that were particularly heartbreaking. Ones like that little girl, locals, up-and-coming surf stars, a hand with uh, the man's wedding ring was found in a tiger shark's belly. What sort of emotional state was the local community in? So the, um, you know, they were, they were pretty, obviously, I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy ongoing, but I think that from my perspective, when I was getting feedback back here, when the little, his name was Elio, when Elio was killed, um, he was 13 years old. He was an up and coming surfer. And there was actually supposed to be a net at that beach. And I don't know, there was a couple of stories about that net. The net might have been damaged or something. And he was he was taken inside a surf area close to the beach at a place called Lazy Grits and Lazy Grits. And that that was tragic. That was absolutely mortifying. The guy's family, it was a big shock. The the government took note. The whole community was in mourning. The surf community was in mourning. This little, this cool little kid who was a really good up and coming surfer. That was the moment where it kind of went into a different level of tragedy. And that was in um, 2015. And you know that's already that's already nine years since the shit started, and nothing had been done about it. And everyone was just going like, "Well, fuck! Now they've got to do something. They've got to do something." And it still was really difficult to do anything. The government wasn't really doing much, but um, yeah, that 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 particular attack was when the community went into mourning, like for real. Wow! And what was the government's response to that attack? Well, you know, the government's response, and um, they've generally um, not wanted to do much um, because they were always um, under pressure from the, the the beach community, the surf community, and the environmental community and environmental lawyers and stuff like that. Um, so they banned surfing. I mean, they banned surfing. I can't remember what year they banned it, but they banned surfing um, and they banned swimming in the ocean or diving in the ocean unless you were inside the lagoon. Um, and, you know, you can't, they controlled it for a bit. There was a fine of like 35 or 40 euros if you got caught surfing and they, they did it for a bit and then they kind of lost interest and um, surfers started going back out again. But, I mean, the surfers that went back out were pretty... There weren't too many of them, and they were scared. I mean, fuck, you go out there, and there's, there's sharks every day. Yeah, how, do you even enjoy, that, how do you even, even enjoy that surf? It sounds, it sounds like the worst yeah, surf. I even wouldn't if do it. I mean, so I spoke to my friends about it who are over there, and, they, and like, fuck, you've got to understand, when Stanley's cooking, it's like, it's full on one of the best ways around, you know? It's hard to, it's hard to not paddle out, I guess. I mean, it really, it's like... It's like, I mean, it's like if you're at the super bank and it's firing and, and there's no one out, I mean, it's not quite the same, but you know what I mean? You had super tubes and there's no one out. You want to paddle out and get a few barrels and stuff. And I think they went out and they started, but they were, they were getting buzzed there. Eh? I mean, they were getting buzzed. When that attack happened in 2019, um, the guys were surfing that day and they were shitting themselves. And my mate um, and his friends went in and the guy stayed out and he got bitten and he died. I mean, it's full on. Yeah, it's like you're going into the you're going into the danger zone every single time you go for surf. I don't know if I would have done it. I'm, I'm probably too scared. <laughs> yeah, and I mean you're from South Africa, so it's not like sharks are some foreign concept. No, I mean we we see plenty of sharks. I mean I mean Jay Bay and here we are staying until point. There's plenty of sharks. We see them all the time, and they kind of you get out the water and they kind of cruise past. 
But, um, I mean, it's different there. People are getting taken all the time. Well, they were getting taken all the time. In your article, you list the potential contributing factors that that may have been the reason for the increase in the tax, and there might be many more. Things like overfishing, shark hunting, and then nearby fishing reserves. Is there any consensus on who's considered an expert when it comes to understanding these things and and also like what's actually going on in terms of environmentally and, and then on top of that, ethically? There's no one who's um, an expert. Everyone's a fucking expert. I mean, <laughs> everyone, you know, everyone has their say. I mean, the, the contributing factors, I mean, the, the fact that there is a, a shark reserve seemed to be the, the largest factor and I don't know that the reserve's still there. Um, and overfishing of certain species, but we don't really know. No one really knows. I mean, there's another. There's so many variables as to why shark population would increase so much. I mean, you know, it can even go back to the fact that years ago the sharks had. Um, they went to apex. There were other sharks that ate. What are the, those giant sharks used to eat the sharks? I don't know. I mean, there's a million reasons why this could happen. You can't really blame anyone or anything. It's just there, you know. And, and I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, does anyone know? Like there's no, and there's so many variables when it comes to the ocean sharks and, and their interaction with humans that it becomes almost impossible to draw any strong conclusions. But who do we look to? Do we look to like ecologists? Like who, who are the people that are, are, who are qualified to even, even begin to pontificate on this? Yeah, so um, there's a book this guy wrote a book and I'm going to find it. His name is Jean-Francois Nativelle and he wrote a book called Shark Attacks and Modern Tragedy and he's been in the thick of this thing from the very start. Um, it's a great book. I've read it. It's an eye-opener and um, he he still doesn't have a definite reason as to why the sharks are there. Um, his argument is somehow different. His argument is that um, uh, we mustn't make mistakes on behalf of the sharks. I mean, humans are also part of nature. But it's a good book and it has got all the facts and figures and the possible reasons. Uh, yeah, Shark Attacks and Modern Tragedy by Jean-Francois Nativel. You should have a look at that book. One of the divides seems to be around preserving the life of the sharks and uh, versus uh, humans' ability to, to enjoy the ocean. And then the spill-on effects are from that, which are the economic effects, which are, I'm imagining, pretty huge as it seems like a, a tourist destination and then throughout the years when this argument's been raging on, Jeremy Flores, who's actually from Reunion Island, he lost a friend uh, to a bull shark and the body was never recovered. And he's, he, as well as his father, have been really vocal about the topic. And then Kelly publicly called for a cull and then he was vilified for it. Who are the, the loudest voices when it comes to these topics? Is the environmentalist versus the surfers or what is the... What is the dynamic of the debate? So um, the surfers had lots to say and the surfers reached out and they had um, their ideas and they had their, um, how can I say, they had um, some policies they wanted to put into place and they were, every single time um, there was any progress made, the environmentalists stepped in and then it was kind of um, back to square one where just a, a round argument where, Someone says this and someone says, but you can't do this because of that. And then the decisions never get made. I mean, the government never made the decisions. Um, there was a standoff all the time. Eventually, from what I can gather, the surfers over recently, as we've spoken about, um, got together and they managed to find the correct people with the correct energy in the environmentalist as well as in the government and work together. And when those three parties work together, they become very powerful as a unit. But um, up until now, those were the three parties who all had loud voices but never in agreement. The environmentalists, the surfers or the ocean users and the government. Yeah, and so essentially it just ended up in nothing happening for a long time and other than banning surfing, which wasn't even properly policed or adhered to, they just didn't, they did nothing? Is that, is that, is that right? Yeah, they pretty much did nothing. They tried a few things. They tried a few, um, as I said, there was... There were a couple of nets in a few bays, like where the one guy was, the kid was attacked. And then they had like a, um, I forget what the French name was, but they put like divers in the water and jet skis in the water. And then they had surf training for school kids at a certain few of the, of the waves. But I mean, 
And they were quite small, like little pockets of um, of of influence. They weren't really doing anything on a on a national scale. And to be honest, there are nothing really worked out. So nothing was really being done at all. And it still was. Uh, government was still making it illegal to surf. I mean, they weren't policing it anymore, but you still were breaking the law. And if you're breaking the law um, and something happens to you, um, government's not responsible. Ah. Recently, it all changed. The, the opening line from your article is, there were 55 surfers in the water over a March 2021 weekend at St. Lou, absurdly crowded and close to dysfunctional. And that was essentially the return of... of surfing as it as it once was in reunion yeah that was it it was the turning point and you know um, um there was a couple of comments going well what what's the fucking point of surfing with 55 guys i mean that that's irrelevant i mean every one of those 55 guys were absolutely stoked i mean they were in the water maybe it was a bit crowded i mean we all know what crowds are like you still get a couple of bombs in between the crowds here and there um but the fact that you can go out and surf again, and also the, the very fact that, you know, there's a bit of safety in numbers. I would have been stoked to have 55 guys out with me um, just to, you know, drop the percentages down in case something did go wrong, even though they were pretty, they were pretty much protected the whole time. But that was the turning point um, when that the surf club and the government and the environmentalists had figured out a way to get the guys back in the water that was pretty safe. I mean, it's still not 100% safe. You know, you're always going to have risks. Um, especially if the visibility is not 100%, but they've got a pretty good system. Yeah, and this new system is called Zonex. Can you explain what Zonex is, please? Yeah, so um, they've got a, f- a number of things that they do. I think it's called Zonex, but uh, um, oh, Zonex. the things that they do, yeah, it's like the Zone X. Um, oh, now I get it. Yeah. I was like... Zonex, yeah. just treating it as a word, but Zone X. No, Zone X, and it's like experiment or exploratory. Or X is the the the, the, the active word that they're trying to figure this whole thing out. It's yep. new territory. So they've got smart drum lines surrounding. Well, I'm not sure how many, but they've got a number of smart drum lines in functional areas around San Lu. The the wave. Um, they've got jet skis, two jet skis operating. They've got a rubber duck operating. They've got a land um, base, there's like a headquarters there in the front and they've got a drone operator working at times and there's communication amongst the whole lot and the basically the back line of the guy surfing is controlled by the by the skis and the duck and and the drone and the um, drum lines so you've pretty much got security for like a million times more security than what you had yeah, and is this just at St. Louis or is this at multiple spots or every spot or how do they? How you know, do... so uh, Zonex is, it's, 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 uh, it's an experiment. So they're trying it out at St. Louis and um, they, have a, they have the website, the Facebook page of that, um, that surf um, club, the Tropic, Tropic Le Surf Club. Um, you go onto that Facebook page and they'll let you know if there's going to be a surf day. I mean, they're not going to operate when the when the waves are shit or unsure or flat. So they'll give you a heads up and they'll say, uh, looks like a four-foot swell Tuesday, um, pull in. And then you've got to go and go through the system. I mean, if you want to be part of the system and have all your securities and insurances, you need to join the club. Zonex sounds really expensive. Did you get a sense of the the amount of money that they're throwing at this? Yeah, totally. It's 400,000 euros per beach. Per year. Wow. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And and do you think that's sustainable? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like knowing um knowing the the area and knowing the community and having a, a some knowledge of the surfing um industry that's that's asleep right now. Um and as well as associated tourism, you know, like not necessarily just hardcore surfers, but the actual tourism of people who wanted to come to an, uh, to like a holiday island that's got beautiful beaches, that that money, that 400000 per beach, let's say five beaches, two, two, two million, whatever, that's a drop in the hat compared to what could happen with tourism if tourism turns around again. I mean, fuck, if people start coming back like they used to, um, it'll take a while, but that, that money is totally money well spent. Well, let's hope so. I mean, it's it's only a small uh, population there, relatively. It's under a million. I think it's not around nine hundred thousand 
in is the current amount. So it is like a small economy. So a huge part of their their money does come from tourism. So you could get a massive influx of tourism across the board. Um, and I think it could be sustainable if the if the if the people start coming back. Anything to do with sharks, surfing, the environment, and tourism seem to uh, seem to generate a lot of comments and feedback. Do you, do you mind if I read a couple to you now and then get you to uh, respond? Yeah, no, yeah, it's totally cool. I mean, uh, every single time I run a story about the sharks, I do get uh, fucking hate mail, and it is what it is. Um, you know, it's a it's a sensitive issue, but I mean, it's you know, you have um you have the environmentalists and the ecologists who believe um in the sanctity of the shark and how you you need to protect them. But then you get people killed on the other hand, and you get all these uh, traumatized and ruined families on the other side. So it's a uh, it's a difficult road. I try and just release the facts as best yeah. I can sometimes. Yeah, you know what? One thing that I find really interesting is when I hear people that they might like, for example, eat meat, they might eat factory farmed meat and then yet and have no concern for the suffering of animals they eat and the conditions in which they live, the suffering they, they, they're exposed to. And then when it comes to sharks, they suddenly are desperately keen to defend their right not to be culled. And it's, I find it like such a it's, – it's almost like – the fact that sharks are so big, scary and have been vilified in culture almost a little bit from the shark attacks and then movies like Jaws, it's almost like a reverse psychology where people get particularly defensive of sharks because they feel like they need defending, I think. Yeah, you, you spot on there. I mean, it is a bit of a contradiction that there are people um, having a hamburger and wearing um, leather shoes but they're protecting the sharks. I mean, you do get that around the world. Um, it is what it is though. I mean, people for some reason, like to, like to start talking when it's about sharks. They like to have their voices heard. <laughs> and everyone's an expert, as I said earlier. Yeah. But it, it is, I mean, Fred Paul, Fred, you know Fred, I mean, he, he's, um, he doesn't sit on the fence at all in this situation. And he's, I mean, it's a fish. A shark is a fish. People eat fish all the time. I mean, you know, when, 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 there's, a, when there's a rogue elephant trampling all over the game reserve, they're, they're they kill the fucking thing. I mean, they have to. When there's a um, when there's an escaped lion or something, they hunt it down because it's going to eat humans. I mean, that's the the world we live in. Yet the shark is singled out for total protection because we are um, living in we're going into their home or we're going to their playground or stuff like that. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. All right. Well, let's get into some of these comments anyway. Okay. First one. Kind of pissed me off to hear Stab complaining about ecologists getting in the way and implying that they were somehow responsible for unnecessary human deaths. How dare anyone try to protect an ecosystem when rich people demand their birthright to surf safely wherever they want, to, wherever they want and at all times? No respect. Any, any, anything, any response to that, Craig? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the shit only became good when the ecologist or the environmentalist agreed that there's something way out of whack in reunion and they needed a solution and the only way to get a solution was to work together. Up until that point, the, every single argument had been um, nullified either way, whether the environmentalists had an argument, the surfers nullified them, whether the surfers had an argument, the environmentalists nullified them, or they were both squashed by the government. But the only time that it started working was when the environmentalists stepped up to the plate and said, right, we're going to work with you guys and we're going to make this thing happen. So you can read it however you want, but it was, it was, it was as a result of them agreeing to work with the other two parties that should start happening. Yep. All right, next one. Sharks paralyzed island economy, then COVID destroyed island economy. Now the short-sighted island bureaucrats are trying to use a Band-Aid solution concocted from multiple solutions that all work a little bit. Good luck to all involved. Yeah, he's kind of right. Whoever that is, he or she's kind of right. I mean, the shark did paralyze the island economy. COVID totally screwed it up. I don't think the short side, they're short-sighted island bureaucrats. I think they actually got a bit of vision on this thing because they, what starts off as a bandaid solution could uh, roll out and fix the island for the problem. Well, not fix the island, but fix a large portion of, of where the problems are. Um, there are multiple solutions. It all do work a little better, but I mean, that's that's a bigger solution. You add a whole bunch of little things that work together and you get a big solution. 
I mean, he's actually stating that right there, but at least he says good luck, so all cool. All right, last one. Nothing like a good marketing article to keep the spot low-key and the lineups in check. What's that one saying? Release the hounds, perhaps in this case, release the sharks. Yeah, that's, that, that doesn't make much sense. There's not much marketing in, in the article at all. Um, yeah, I guess like to, to, to make this stab was not paid to to cover this story and, and Craig was not paid by the government to write this story. This is essentially surf news that is is relevant worldwide because these kind of issues are worldwide. Yeah. But I mean, the tiny cheap fact that you keep the surf spot low key, I mean, fuck, there's 20 brilliant surf spots and 19 of them are totally and utterly deserted without a single surfer or spectator right now. There's one spot on the island that's got surfers on it with a bit of security um, and they're only surfing when when they get the Zonex crew together, which is on the on the decent to good days. It's not every day that they do it. So the, then we're not. There's no marketing to bring people. There's no. It's just a, it's a news piece. The lineups are still in check. The spots are still super there. The lowest of low key spots in the whole fucking world right now. I mean, no one's paddling out at the spots because they're too scared, and rightly so. If you were to go to like Lomitage on a good day and stand there on the beach and look across the lagoon and look at those waves. There's a left and a right. It's like it, it would blow your mind. It'll make you sick with envy that you can't go and paddle out there. I mean, it, the, the waves are incredible. They are incredible. They are incredible. They are incredible. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And also thank you for all the reviews of the podcast. They are much appreciated. We're rewarding the best reviews with some Stab Premium subscriptions. So if you take the time to rate and review the podcast, then please email it to me at danny at stabmag.com and you'll have a chance to win a membership. Thank you for listening and I will see you next week.